So before we do, are there any questions from last time or from the homework or anything else? Okay. So let me just remind you of where we are. We uh, talked about absorption spectroscopy methods last time. We looked at three specific methods that increase the, uh, the sensitivity of an absorption measurement. Uh, frequency modulation, which is a technique of uh, dithering the laser frequency back and forth the absorption at that frequency that lets us get uh, our signal to a frequency at which the noise can be lower. Intercavity absorption was a technique where an absorbing material is placed inside of a, a laser cavity that's near threshold and the presence of a small amount of absorption can produce a large change in the output power because it's near threshold so that's a sort of amplification due to the uh, cavity. And then cavity ring down spectroscopy, which we'll talk a little bit more about today. And that was a technique where um, the decay time of a cavity is measured and related to the round trip absorption in the cavity, which is uh, due in part to the material present inside of the cavity. So we will go over a paper today that you were asked to read. Uh, on cavity ring down spectroscopy, we'll talk a little bit about um, basically everything that's in the paper that relates to stuff we've covered up until now. So just a chance for you to see all of this applied in sort of a real world setting. And then we will go on to talk about uh, methods of emission spectroscopy, which is just a different class of spectroscopy where you're looking at the light that's emitted um, after population is pumped into an upper state. So rather than by observing the absorbed radiation, you observe the re-emitted radiation. And in doing so, there are some advantages, some disadvantages, and some different things that that radiation can tell you about your, your sample. So um, how much of this we'll get through, I'm not sure. I don't expect we'll get to the, the paper that you were asked to read for today, um, but I do think we will cover that on Monday. Okay, so. Um, well, I just kind of did this summary, so skip over that slide. Um, you were asked to read a paper. If you have a hard copy of that, does everybody have a hard copy? I do have printouts if you don't. Okay. Um, so what I'd like to do is give you two minutes to scan over the first page. So hopefully you've read this already. And I just want you to... Um, circle or highlight or note anything that uh, you come across that we've discussed in class or is related to things we've discussed in class and then we'll just have a discussion about the first page and we'll sort of go through page by page.
Okay, so let's go over a few things. I know that wasn't time to fully read it, but hopefully you've read it already. Um, what's the basic mechanism for the absorption measurement that's being described? What equipment do we have? Um, what general diagram can I draw for the experiment? Yeah, it's right in the abstract. There's a laser cavity, um, some sample inside the laser cavity. And it actually just says in more general terms, in the abstract, it says narrow absorption spectra are recorded by scanning the output of a pulsed laser. So we've got a laser. It happens to be pulsed. That's relevant for the specific technique being used in this experiment. But in a general sense, it's uh, scanned. So there's some frequency control. That goes through the sample, uh, scanning the output, uh, recording this. The spectra is recorded by scanning the output of a pulsed laser through an absorption resonance. So there's your sample, here's your detector. And you'd expect. See something like that. Okay, and then the paper goes on to describe what effect this, uh, this cavity has. Um, let's see. Why? Um, Why does it say that this type of absorption measurement may be advantageous to an emission measurement? So an emission measurement, forget about the cavity for now. We'll get to that in a minute. An emission measurement would be something like this. Fluorescence coming out, imaged onto a detector. So we have a lens, and a detector, and this would be the uh, emission. And you'd expect this would look something like So what reasons are given in the paper for why you would want to choose one over the other? Sorry, say that again. Yes, that is a reason that you would want to use which technique? The absorption. Okay, so uh, if that weren't the case, why might you want to use the emission? Uh, well, the easier to detect because it's a bigger change. It's a bigger change. Yeah, so it says uh, emission measurements can be more sensitive since they measure the appearance of a small signal rather than a small change in a large signal. Um, okay, so in many applications, there's rapid quenching, it says. Uh, what does that mean? Let's consider some energy levels. Say so we have an energy level diagram in a system in the ground state. Uh, what is going to happen in an emission uh, measurement? What's going to happen to this population when you shine it with a laser and you want to observe some emission? 
Where does this population go? Okay, so first it goes up into one of the upper states. And that's what we'd observe uh, when that transition occurs. We'd observe, observe a dip in the transmitted power. And then what happens it corresponds to an observation of some emitted light. It goes back down. Okay, so it goes back down. It may go all the way back down or part, part of the way back down. And the process gives off a photon. And so we call that radiative decay. And uh, we often have denote this uh, radiative lifetime as gamma rad. So what does it mean when it says, um, large polyatomic molecules, however, uh, absorption measurements are potentially superior because of the rapid quenching through energy redistribution processes of the upper state formed by absorption of a photon. There are, yeah, that's uh, related to the polyatomic molecule. There may be lots of upper states, but um, the wavelength of our laser here is going to determine which gets pumped to. Um, it says that this uh, rapid quenching will re greatly reduce the emission quantum yield. Anyone want to hazard a guess as to what that means? Uh, Okay, so consider two photons excited to this, two molecules excited to this upper state, and one decays radiatively and produces emission that you can detect, and the other one may collide with another atom or transfer its energy into some other internal form, thereby decaying. through a non-radiative process. And that decay won't give off a photon. So the emission quantum yield, anybody want to guess how we would define that? Okay, so by how much? What do you mean? Intensity? Yeah, it's, it's quantum yield. So quantum always implies a number, discrete numbers of things. So we'll have the uh, number of emitted photons. divided by the number of, of absorbed photons. Okay, so if there are no collisions or other degrees of freedom that can carry away the energy, what would you expect this fluorescence quantum yield to be? One. And in the presence of alternative decay mechanisms, you would expect that quantum yield decrease. And as it decreases, the relative amount of power that would be available for detection decreases as well. Good. 
Um, in the second column, does anybody notice uh, anything talking about techniques we described on Monday? Yeah. Um, the required intensity stability has been achieved using several types of continuous lasers, typically employing some form of frequency modulation to discriminate against low frequency noise. Okay, so that was Monday's lecture, mostly. Um, how about the last sentence of that paragraph? Because of these limitations, sensitive absorption measurements have not been made over the full spectral range accessible using nonlinear frequency conversion techniques. What do they mean by the full spectral range accessible using nonlinear frequency conversion techniques? So the frequency of the laser can only be tuned over a very small bandwidth. That's true. Uh, 10 nanoseconds is uh, a 10-foot length. So that's a radio wave. It's not optical. So what are the requirements? If you have a sample, in this particular case, uh, they chose a sample in gaseous molecular oxygen for their analysis. Um, but in general, if you have a sample that you want to measure the absorption spectrum of, or the, just the spectrum of, whether it be absorption or emission, uh, what requirement, or what's the relationship between the spectrum of that sample and the necessary spectrum of your laser source? You can only measure the spectrum of the sample over a region that you can tune your laser to. Right. So let me uh, let's say this is UV. So here's a plot as a function of wavelength. This is near infrared right here. This is mid infrared. This is infrared. And this is a visible. Does anybody remember what some of the accessible wavelengths are using lasers, or in particular tunable lasers? Or does anybody remember what some of the tunable lasers are? Uh, the titanium sapphire. Titanium sapphire, right. And anybody have any off the top? I know you could look it up in your notes. Don't bother. What's that, Nicole? 
the neodymium egg is not tunable. Uh, the neodymium egg is right here. So dye lasers and tie sapphire are the two tunable ones. Uh, dye lasers generally are uh, tunable from near UV to mid-visible, blue-green. Uh, and then the tie sapphire is from red to near infrared. That's it. Those are basically the tunable lasers that are available, that tune over a large bandwidth. There's a handful of lasers that tune over a very small frequency region. So if you want to measure the spectrum across the entire optical spectrum of some sample, you're out of luck if you want to use a laser. So why do we use, remind me why we use lasers to do uh, spectral measurements as opposed to a white light source? How would an experiment go with a white light source trying to measure the spectrum of a sample? So sort of the equivalent of this experiment right here. This is just canonical laser absorption spectroscopy. It is. So we'd start with uh, a light bulb or some sort of white light source. And we would have our sample, probably focus that, have our sample. And then send the light into a spectrometer. It could be a prism spectrometer or a grading spectrometer. And this is a device that has a dial or electrical control that allows you to sweep the frequencies at which it's measuring, and then it will plot the power that it measures as a function of the frequency or wavelength. And what limits the resolution of that device? Or I mean, what limits the resolution of this measurement, I should say? Nicole? I see your lips moving. We did a homework. We were calculating resolving powers. It's a grading size of the grading. It's a grading, it's the size of the grading, and roughly it's the number of lines in the grading. And for a reasonable scale grading, a couple, I'd say 10 centimeters across and 1,000 lines per millimeter, that's like. Uh, 10 to the fifth for resolving power. So over your visible spectrum, you'd essentially have 10 to the fifth points. That's what that's saying that you're, that you're measuring, which is a relatively coarse measurement. 
you wouldn't be able to see a lot of the things you're interested in seeing. For instance, you wouldn't be able to measure the Doppler broadened line width of some gas to infer its temperature. Because the resolution of the spectrometer wouldn't be fine enough to differentiate between the natural line width and the Doppler broadened line width. You wouldn't be able to see the differences between different, uh, maybe different isotopes. Okay, so in this experiment, the resolution is limited by the spectrometer. What about in this experiment? What limits the resolution? Uh, well, I erase the cavity. The line width of the laser. So here what we're doing is we're shining white light through, and then the spectrometer is picking off and is filtering out that line, that white light, and only looking at a small region or the bandwidth, or small bandwidth of that white light. Here, we're sending through a very small bandwidth of light to begin with, and then just detecting it all. And because the line width of a laser is much smaller than that of the spectrometer, you get much better resolution. So that's why we're using the lasers. But it says that uh, because of some limitations, absorption measurements have not been made over the full spectral range accessible doesn't say accessible using lasers. The frequency range accessible using lasers is what I've drawn on the board. It says frequency range accessible using nonlinear frequency conversion techniques. So we talked, we spent half of a lecture talking about nonlinear frequency conversion techniques. And that's where the neodymium YAG laser was discussed. Anybody remember the name of some of those nonlinear frequency conversion techniques? Or can anyone describe what, what they do? Yeah. So second harmonic generation is a particular nonlinear frequency technique that absorbs two photons and emits a single photon with twice the energy and therefore half the wavelength. And in doing so, frequency double dye laser is going to be able to access a lower wavelength than the regular dye laser and the frequency doubled titanium sapphire laser. So this was a tie sapphire. The frequency doubled will shift its frequency down. And there were other techniques, like uh, some frequency generation, um, optical parametric generation, that can shift the frequencies up by taking a single photon and breaking it into two, uh, each of less energy or longer wavelength. And so um, the whole infrared region of the spectrum can be accessed by taking lasers, converting their frequencies to other frequencies, where you don't normally have a tunable laser available. Okay, so that's a common method used to get tunable radiation at the frequency of interest with a line width comparable to what a laser would have, as opposed to something like a white light being filtered, 
with a much coarser line width. Is there anything else on the first page that anybody caught that they wanted to comment on? not, let's go on to the second page and do the same thing. Okay, so a couple things that caught my eye. The very first paragraph is the mention of a multi-pass optical cell being developed to increase the net absorption. Talked about that last time a little bit. You'll have a homework problem on that uh, coming up in the future. What was a multi-pass optical cell? Does it like this? Yes or no? Um, the one with the very long paragraph. Yeah, so this, what would we call a pair of mirrors that fold the light back and forth on itself like this? That's a fabric row cavity. That's not what we call a multi pass optical cell. 
the multipass optical cell could look the same, except that there's an off-axis hole or a small little steering mirror here to inject light in. And then there's a geometric path that will allow the light to bounce back and forth between the mirrors before eventually being re-imaged back to the point where it came in. And then out. So that's the multipass cell. So those are pretty common in laser spectroscopy. Um, so what's one of the advantages of this over this? More passes. Yeah, more passes. So in this one, if we look at the mirrors, uh, so if we turn the mirrors and look at how the light is hitting them, the first spot comes in and hits right here. And then it bounces back and comes back and actually hits right about there. And then the next spot there. And they kind of walk around in this pattern. And the spots need to be spatially separated because so we're taking the geometry where the spots are all equal size. It's not the only geometry. If this was, say, a hole in the mirror where the first spot beam was launched through, the adjacent reflections need to miss that hole. They can't overlap. And so there has to be some separation of adjacent spots, and that limits the number of spots you can have. Okay, so in practical terms, um, on the order of 100 spots or so is is the maximum uh, you can get for a multipass cell. For a Fabry-Pro cavity, all the spots are collinear, and the light is coupled through the mirror rather than through a hole in the mirror. And so every time a little bit of the light leaks out, and through interference, all those <coughs> leaking beams that leak out can add up constructively to produce an output beam. Okay, then what parameter tells us, on average, how long the light bounces back and forth inside this mirror, this cavity? It's, direct, it's related to the transmission coefficient of the mirror. Um, but there's a term that's only used for cavities. Um, what's that? Uh, that's related, but that has units of dimensions of time. Um, there's a unitless parameter, finesse. Finesse describes how many bounces the light takes inside the cavity. So it's, an, it's a finesse over pi is actually the, um, the number that tells you on average how many times a photon would bounce around back and forth inside the mirrors. Um, so the mention. An improvement on the Harriet cell is a closed linear or ring optical cavity with a small portion outcoupled on each reflection. So is that a high finesse cavity or a low finesse cavity? Yes. It's a high finesse. 
if only a small portion is outcoupled on each round trip, that means the light will bounce back and forth more times, if you like. It will tend to stay in the cavity longer because there's a small amount of coupling out. So the smaller the output coupling, the longer, on average, the light will stay in the cavity. That means the higher the finesse. Um, in the bottom of the left-hand column, they say the ultimate sensitivity is limited by the finite mirror loss. Okay, so we derived an expression for the decay time of such a cavity. Last time, 2L over C is a round trip time. And there's a factor that looked like 1 over um, T1. I think they called it a little T1 squared plus little T2 squared plus A, where T1 and T2 are the field transmissivities of mirrors 1 and 2. And A is the fractional loss due to absorption inside the cavity. Okay, so given this expression, and just a reminder, what we'd be observing is uh, for a pulse going into the cavity, the output power would have an exponential decay. And this tau is a measure of the time for it to decay to 1 over E of its initial value. Okay, so given this, can you explain this statement? The ultimate sensitivity is limited by finite mirror loss. Start with no mirror loss. T1 and T2, say those are 0. That's where we're considering our, the loss of the mirror being the light that transmits through. So if that's the case, the exponential decay time is inversely proportional to the absorption in the cavity. As these transmissions increase, When does that relationship break down, roughly? Yes. And it needs to be essentially less than the absorption. Once the transmission is greater than the absorption, then this tau is not changing. Uh, it's not changing rapidly as A changes. Okay, so as 
think about it as having a fixed value for tau for uh, the transmission. As you decrease a, we're going to plot tau as a function of a. See, at large a, there's an inverse proportionality. But then as A becomes smaller than the other losses, we can neglect it, and this becomes constant. So there's no variation in the decay time, or there's negligible variation in the decay time uh, at small absorption. Okay, um, is there anything else on this page that anybody caught that I wanted to mention? Look at the uh, first paragraph on the second column. There's uh, in parentheses, or it says the ability to sample such large paths with the small one meter optical system makes the approach useful. So it says an effective path length of 10 to the 4 meters sampled in a one meter cavity. What's the finesse of that cavity, roughly, order of magnitude? 10 to the 4. Okay, I think we will stop there with the paper. Um, there's certainly more we could talk about further on, but uh, I do want to cover some new material today. Hopefully when you're reading it, you saw a lot of things that uh, made more sense to you now than they would have two months ago. OK, so we're going to shift gears. And instead of talking about absorption spectroscopy, we talk about uh, emission spectroscopy. And so um, we saw for absorption spectroscopy, there are some different techniques we could use, such as frequency modulation, um, that could improve the sensitivity, the ability to observe smaller and smaller amounts of absorption. But sometimes what we want to know is not just how much absorption is there, but uh, there's other information that we can extract that will tell us more about the, uh, the sample than just at what frequency it absorbs. Um, so there are other techniques that will improve the selectivity of a measurement. That's the ability to distinguish between different species. So you can imagine two different molecular species, two different molecules, that by chance or by uh, some particular symmetry have absorption at the same frequency. So an absorption measurement can't distinguish those. Um, but there should be some other way to distinguish them. And there will be, in general, assuming they have different energy levels. Um, and so there are various techniques for differentiating species based on differences in their energy spectrum other than from the ground state to an upper level of absorbing state.
Okay, so we'll look at those. Um, so here's an energy level diagram. And let's say we have a laser which can pump the ground state into this uh, top state here. We might have another species that also has the same ground state and same top state, but may have different intermediate states. Okay, and so that's the type of uh, difference that we can exploit using emission spectroscopy. Okay, so sort of the most general form of emission spectroscopy is laser-induced fluorescence. And that's what I had drawn on the board before, which is use a laser, or actually it doesn't even need to be a laser, it wouldn't be laser-induced, but uh, you pump a system to an upper state, and then as it decays to a lower state, you look at the photons that are given off. Okay, and in the presence of fluorescence, you can assume you must have had absorption in order to get the, the energy up into that excited state. Now there's lots of things you can do. You can look at, for example, um, the wavelength of the fluorescence. And you might see different wavelengths coming out as this upper state decays into different lower states. That could tell you about these intermediate states of your sample and could allow you to differentiate between different types of samples if you knew uh, what their intermediate energy levels were. So some advantages of this emission technique, we already mentioned it's a zero background technique. So you're measuring a small signal, but it's on top of nothing. It's a small signal on top of a zero background instead of a small change in a large signal. Um, here's an expression for the intensity of the laser-induced fluorescence, or LIF. It depends on the uh, absorbed power. So we have the incident laser intensity. Um, N1 is the population density of the lower state. B12 is an efficiency of transfer to the upper state. And then phi is the quantum efficiency that we mentioned before for how many photons in the upper state end up decaying radiatively. So the measurement is directly proportional to the population of the lower state. Okay, for absorption spectroscopy, it's not. Right? Absorption, the amount of absorption is proportional to the lower state, but the power you see out has some DC offset on it. Um, I already mentioned selectivity, meaning you can differentiate between different species based on not only their absorption spectrum, but by their emission into these intermediate states. You can really map out more of their energy levels by looking at where the energy goes after absorption. And another advantage is localization. Since the fluorescence is going in all directions, you can image it onto a CCD or a film plate and determine where it came from. Okay, so I'll just redraw what we had before. Laser light passing through a sample with a photocell. If you measure 
a dip in the absorbed power at some frequency. You don't know where the absorbing species was. What you're measuring is the absorption integrated along the, the path that the, the beam took. Put a lens here and an imaging array, so CCD. CCD's charge coupled device, that's the sensor that's in a camera. You can then differentiate between emission from different points in your sample. And so you can localize where the emission comes from. So that may be useful. Um, Okay, so those are some of the advantages. Some of the disadvantages are that you need to have a high fluorescence quantum yield. That was mentioned in the paper. Uh, otherwise, you're going to have sensitivity issues. So high, atom high fluorescence quantum yield is generally achievable in atomic species. But as was described in the paper with a molecular material where you have lots of uh, different degrees of freedom, the molecular bonds, there are many more opportunities for energy to decay via non-radiative processes. Okay, so you have um, that quenching that reduces the quantum yield that we mentioned from the paper. So we'll see there's a, there's a way to get around this uh, limited quantum yield with a technique called REMPI, Resonant Enhanced Multiphoton Ionization, that has a couple other advantages. It will let us, this will be the first technique that we've introduced that allows us to see sub-Doppler limited features. Okay, so REMPI is another technique that measures, uh, that requires, well, It measures the effect of absorption rather than directly the absorbed power. Okay, so this is a two-photon technique or a multi-photon technique where a single photon excites the ground state into some upper energy level. And if that upper energy level then absorbs another photon, whether it's one more or some higher number of photons, uh, it gets promoted to a higher energy level until eventually it's ionized. So you remove the electron uh, from the atom or, or the molecule. And once it's ionized, this electron flies away. Essentially, it's dissociated from our molecule. And then instead of observing the uh, fluorescence that's given off as that electron decays back down to the ground state, what we're going to do is detect the ions directly. So maybe put an electric field have the ions flow and measure the current. Um, and that can be done with unit quantum efficiency. So every ion we produce, we can detect. Whereas every excited electron we couldn't necessarily detect because it could decay, giving off heat or other non-radiative mechanisms. Okay, so it is better sensitivity than laser-induced fluorescence. Uh, it has another big advantage, which I'll mention in a minute. I mentioned earlier, I'll explain in a minute which is that because it has multiple photons uh, being absorbed, 
uh, we can play around with how these photons are uh, the geometry of where those photons come from to produce sub-Doppler limited uh, spectra. So I'll explain that in a slide or two. So one of the disadvantages, though, is uh, this only works well if there are no background ions present. So there are certain environments, uh, plasmas, flames, discharges, where there's high ion concentration in the background, this wouldn't be a suitable technique. OK, so the idea behind the sub-Doppler limited measurement is, in general, we'll see a lot of techniques over the next two weeks that can achieve sub-Doppler limited performance, um, all involving multiple photons. The idea is that if you have crisscrossing beams in your sample, so instead of just shooting the laser in from one direction, you split it. And then have the two paths from the laser crisscross inside your sample, you can essentially cancel out the Doppler effect. Okay, so in this technique, you, it's considered the two-photon REMPI, where you have to absor absorb two photons in order to get an ion. Um, if those two photons are both coming from the same direction, and your atom or molecule is moving, both photons get the same frequency shift. So here's the Doppler frequency shift for an atom or molecule with velocity v sub z. So z is the direction of, of the beam. So they both get the same frequency shift. And because of that, the resonant frequency gets shifted up or shifted down. Different atoms will have it shifted up. Some will have it shifted down. And so the uh, spectrum that you would observe gets spread out. That's the Doppler broadening that we mentioned. That's going to happen if two photons are absorbed from the left or if two photons are absorbed from the right. What if you have one absorbed from the left and one absorbed from the right? No Doppler broadening. Essentially, the frequency of one, let's say the atom is moving to the left, the frequency of the incoming one from the left gets shifted up. The frequency of the one from the right gets shifted down. So it's going to absorb essentially more energy from this one than it will from that one. But the total energy will remain the same. And so it will only, only when the laser is on resonance uh, between two states will the total energy between these two add up to the energy level difference between those states. Okay, so what we'll see is this Doppler limited uh, absorption profile. And on top of that, we'll see this sharp peak. And so I don't think this is drawn quite just well. Actually, this is drawn pretty well to scale. This peak should be as high as that. Because okay, it has equal chance of absorbing two counterpropagating photons as two co-propagating photons. And so this line width is the natural line width. Or at least it's the homogeneous line width. So if there's other homogeneous broadening me mechanisms um, that broaden the line width, that's what this is. And then this is the Doppler line. OK, so another technique that can achieve, uh, well, let me see. 
about that. Um, a similar technique that involves sending counter-propagating photons into a sample. Here you may have, uh, you may not be ionizing the sample, but absorption of two photons will provide enough energy to get to a real energy level. So this is just um, absorption that requires two photons to pump up to a, a given energy level. And unlike uh, the Rempe technique I described earlier, here we're assuming that these two photons are somehow different. Whether that's they're coming from different lasers, or I do something to one beam relative to the other. I'll describe what I might do to one beam relative to the other. Then I can look at my expression for the amount of fluorescence that I see. I put up an expression earlier. Um, the amount of fluorescence I see is proportional to the population in the lower state. And the amount of that population that gets pumped to the upper state. Okay, so the concentration in the lower straight state times the uh, cross-section gives me the absorption coefficient. So this is the absorption coefficient from the bottom state. So that absorption coefficient times the total intensity coming from two different beams times the path length gives me the amount of intensity that's absorbed, it's pumped up to the upper state. And then the fluorescence that I see is proportional to that, proportional by the, the quantum efficiency, which is I think the only factor that's not drawn in here. Okay, so what's interesting is that this population density of the lower state can get saturated. That is to say there is some unsaturated value for the population, but as I start to pump population up to the upper state, I'm going to see a reduced amount of population in the lower state. I've pumped it away. The amount that it gets reduced is just uh, I think there's a constant proportionality that's missing there, but the amount that it gets reduced is proportional to how hard I'm pumping the lower state. That's really all that's important here. Um, I'm pumping it with two beams, I1 and I2. And so if I plug in this expression for the saturated population of the lower state, I get uh, the unsaturated population times I1 plus I2. That's this part. And then I get this, which is the amount of saturation that I have, proportional to how hard I'm driving it times how hard I'm driving it. So I get this uh, I1 plus I2 squared. Okay, so one factor of the I1, I2 comes from the uh, bottom state being saturated. The next factor comes from uh, that intensity being responsible for pumping the bottom state up to the upper state. And that squared means I'm going to have cross terms. Okay, so if I look at that, if I multiply through that squared, there's going to be a I1 times I2 term. And that I1 times I2 term 
can have some interesting properties, um, or I can arrange it to have some interesting properties if I modulate field 1 and field 2. So by modulate, I mean change their intensity. Uh, so here, I0 is the initial intensity, and it gets modulated around that value at some frequency omega 1. M is called the modulation depth. That's relatively how much the intensity is changing. Omega 1 is the frequency at which it's changing. So I1 is modulated at some frequency omega 1. I2 is modulated at some frequency omega 2. So it's maybe the same. They may be different. And physically, I would do that by putting an amplitude modulator in both arms. Okay, so uh, if I take these values for the intensities and I multiply them together, the cross term uh, that I care about is the one that comes from the modulation. And so it's going to have an m squared times sine omega 1t sine omega 2t. And when you have the product of two different frequency sine waves, you can use a trig identity to write those as I guess here it's the cosine of the difference frequency and the cosine of the sum frequency. And so this cross term, which is an intensity, will be modulated at the difference frequency and at the sum frequency. And what's important is if I look for how much intensity I have at the difference frequency or the sum frequency, I will only see a signal at those frequencies for atoms or molecules that have absorbed a photon from both directions. Why is that? Yeah, it's the I1, I2 term. It has to necessarily have absorbed one from each. If they absorb two from the same direction, I'm not going to have uh, both frequencies uh, or both fields contributing. Okay, so if I observe using some lock-in amplifier that picks out a particular frequency of a signal and measures how uh, large that Fourier frequency component is, if I lock in on the difference frequency or the sum frequency, I'm measuring only the absorption of atoms that absorb photons in each direction. And those are the ones that will not, that will have the Doppler shift cancel out. The same mechanism we saw before. So that's another Doppler free uh, technique. So I alluded to another technique before. It's called dispersed fluorescence. So there's a slide on it. I basically already described this, um, where the energy in the absorbed or energy in the upper state level after absorption uh, can go to a couple different places, go to the intermediate energy levels as it decays. And when it decays, it gives off photons of the appropriate energy. And by putting that light that you, uh, that you observe through a spectrometer, you can determine how much of this upper state is decaying into this level, into this level. And you can also determine what energy levels there are below that upper state. 
Um, in doing that, though, what would limit your ability to resolve these energy levels? So when I say resolve an energy level, that's equivalent to resolving a line on a spectrum. Right? So an absorption line is the wavelength associated with the energy difference between two states. And now here we're looking at a decay into a lower state. So if you're putting this fluorescence through a spectrometer, what limits the resolution of the fluorescence spectra you observe, and therefore the width of these lines that you can draw in this energy level diagram? The spectrometer. Okay. So we already talked about how um, using a tunable laser instead of white light and a spectrometer gives you better resolution. For absorption measurements, the same is true for fluorescence measurements. Um, in order to improve the resolution of an emission spectra, it would be useful to use a laser instead of a spectrometer. How do you think you do that? Um, so make a laser out of this? Yeah. yeah you could do that. Uh, you'd end up measuring the line width of the cavity, though. And the interference, uh, you might be able to do something with interference. I haven't thought about that, but that's not, that's not where I'm going. There's a technique called stimulated emission pumping. This is the first of a so-called pump probe experiments that we'll talk about. The idea is you have two different lasers that you're going to interrogate your sample with that may be of uh, completely different frequencies. The pump is the one that deposits energy and excites the sample into the upper state. And left on its own, that sample would decay into the various lower states, giving off fluorescence that you could then try to send through a spectrometer. While the population is in the upper state, though, there's a population inversion to all these intermediate states. So it would be possible to make a laser based on this device, put a couple mirrors around this, the spontaneous emission to the lower states could pass back and forth through the laser cavity, get gain, get lasing output. Um, or you can make a laser amplifier. So the difference between a laser oscillator, which is usually what we refer to as a laser, and a laser amplifier is mirrors. Okay, without mirrors, um, instead of taking some of the random fluorescence that comes off and sending it back in to be amplified, you just take some other laser and send it through and allow that other laser to get amplified. So you're, there's no feedback. There's no buildup of the initial uh, spontaneous emission. It's some other seed field that gets built up. That's called your probe beam, that other laser. You're only going to get amplification when that probe beam is tuned 
to a frequency corresponding to the energy level difference at which there's an inversion. And so as you tune your probe, um, you probe energy levels that you're tuning. And only when that probe frequency corresponds to a real energy level difference do you get amplification. Do you get amplification of the probe? Seems kind of silly to be talking about high-tech techniques and experiments to not be able to lock a screen down at the same time. So what you could do is you could, for instance, measure the power of your probe going through your sample. And as you tune the frequency of the probe, what would you see? Uh, Yeah, you'd see a spike in the power. as that probe frequency tuned through this resonance. And your ability to resolve that resonance is given by the line width of your laser, not the line width of some spectrometer. And as you tune the laser through however far you can tune it, you'd see spikes. Um, You'd also see if there's a spike in the energy that's decaying via stimulated emission, there will be a drop in the energy emitted via spontaneous emission. So you could continue to image your fluorescence. And when you send the laser through, if it produces amplification, you'll see a drop in the fluorescence. So you can either measure a drop in the fluorescence or an increase in the uh, probe power. And that brings us up to uh, the paper that I'd like to discuss next time. We don't have time to discuss it today. But uh, it's on the web, so please read it out. Please read it, uh, bring in a hard copy, and uh, annotate it uh, with similar uh, discussion topics in mind as we had today. When you read through it, anything you see that references stuff we've talked about in class, particularly stuff we talked about today, jot it down. A couple things I'd like you to do. There is a full page experimental diagram, the second or third page. We're going to try to figure out what everything in that diagram does and why it's there. Okay, so think about that. Um, and as you're going through reading about the experiment, try to correlate that to what's in the diagram. Okay, so to summarize sort of the last two days, we're talking about various methods of measuring spectra using lasers. Now, first we talked about absorption measurements. And compared to sort of a direct absorption measurement taken at DC, where you just send the light through and see how much power is absorbed, um, modulating the laser frequency allows you to measure at much higher frequencies where the noise is lower. That can greatly improve your sensitivity. Um, Placing the material inside of a cavity increases the effective interaction length that increases the sensitivity as well. And in particular, uh, setting the cavity near its, if it's a laser cavity, if it's near threshold, you get a nice binary, uh, nonlinear turn on of the cavity as the gain exceeds the losses. So you get a very large uh, magnification of the effect of the loss. 
And then we talked yesterday, or Monday and today about cavity ring down spectroscopy, where we uh, use a laser, well, a laser sent into a cavity, power builds up in the cavity, and then it, as we turn off the laser, that power decays, and we can relate the absorption in the cavity to the exponential uh, decay time. The advantage of that is by measuring over a long period of time, you can collect a lot of data points sort of have more data to average out than just a single shot measurement. Today we talked about emission spectroscopy that all occurs after you've pumped a system into an excited state. So because this type of spectroscopy requires the system first be pumped to an excited state, you can, for instance, first select one particular type of uh, molecule in a sample and excite only that by sending in a pump laser that only gets absorbed by the molecule you're interested in. And then you can explore um, how that molecule behaves, what its energy levels are. Maybe if you have different uh, forms of the same molecule, meaning different, uh, um, different helicity or chirality or different, um, there's some other property of the molecule that you can differentiate based on the emission spectra, you can do that uh, in the presence of lots of other, uh, other materials uh, because you can isolate your material and then you can do some uh, measurements on it. So that's called selectivity. Um, these techniques, we introduced for the first time these two photon processes today. So REMPI was one of them, intermodulated fluorescence was another. And in general, when you see two photon process, you should think sub-Doppler limited resolution. So there's lots of different mechanisms in which you read out the effect of uh, two photon interactions, but by having counterpropagating photons, their Doppler effect of the two can cancel each other. We also introduced for the first time pump probe methods. We're using not a single, but multiple lasers um, to move the population between energy levels. So different lasers tuned to different transitions. And so we talked about it today in terms of uh, improving this, the uh, resolution of an emission spectrum. But in more general terms, you can really, with uh, a large number of lasers, move the population around. Take it from the ground state to an excited state, move it from that excited state to a different state, from that state to another state. And through a, a series of steps, reposition the population from the initial ground state into some essentially arbitrary excited state, which may or may not be accessible via a single laser transition. We talked about how lasers have a there's limited region of the spectrum that's covered by laser sources. If you want to excite an atom into a particular state, you may be able to do it through a series of steps. Um, and really, that's where the spectroscopy starts to give way to uh, quantum manipulation and atomic optics and really preparing specific quantum states um, for doing interesting physics experiments often is, uh, uses a spectroscopy technique to manipulate the internal, internal states. Okay, uh, please turn in your homework if you haven't already. There will be another homework due on uh, next Wednesday. And we've already covered everything you should need to do that. So if you wanted to get started, there's really nothing to benefit by waiting.